up on today's show, Long COVID. You've heard of it. I know you have. We'll answer all your questions about Long COVID today. Omicron is affecting staffing levels in, well, every industry. What does it mean for Canadian food production? And we'll speak with the lawyer who actually helped fight for the rights of First Nations children against the Canadian government. We'll get her to We're going to chat with Dr. Angela Chung, who is the co-lead of CanCove, the Canadian COVID-19 Perspective Cohort Study, co-lead of Reclaim, Recovering from COVID-19 Lingering Symptoms Adaptive Integrative Medicine Trial. Uh, Dr. Chung, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you, Shay, for having me. Um, Okay, can we even define long COVID? I mean, some of the reading I was doing this weekend, like there's up to 100 potential symptoms. Do we know exactly what long COVID is? Um, so uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, has a definition for um, what they call post-COVID condition, which is really long COVID, okay. as lingering symptoms um, uh, at the three-month time point. Um, so it's past sort of the three-month time point, and, uh, and it's uh, lingering, um, and that you cannot account it uh, you know, you cannot say it's because of some other condition. Okay, so you can't find any other explanation for it. Gotcha. What are the common symptoms? What are the ones that people most commonly report? Fatigue, um, shortness of breath, uh, aches and pains, and brain fog are probably the most common type of symptoms. Okay. Um, do we have any idea what causes it? What the reason that we see it showing up, you know, as you say, three months after infection? Well, there are many hypotheses um, on why people have long COVID. Um, one of them is that there may be residual viral particles. Uh, another one is because um, it it's something to our immune system. And so uh, it may be an inflammatory response. Um, and there are other reasons that may be um, sort of uh, maybe the cause of it, um, such as uh, dysfunction in the endothelial system. Uh, bottom line is we don't have all the answers. We are still um, looking into it. Um, and I'm not talking about just our group, but internationally. Yeah. And we, you know, it's an evolving science right now. Uh, but it is quite real. Um, it's not all in someone's head. Um, and the symptoms can be mild, but it can also be debilitating. Um, in terms of this kind of a reaction to a virus, is there other instances where this happens from other viruses? Like we know we have some sort of data that, you know, if, you, if you're infected with this virus, there is a chance that something like this, long-term symptoms or lingering symptoms can happen? For sure. I mean, there have been other viral illnesses like um, uh, mono or uh, EBV is the virus, yeah. uh, Epstein-Barr virus. Yeah. Um, there are many other viral diseases that have lingering symptoms. And, um, you know, what we're seeing in long COVID is very similar to uh, what we call MECFS, uh, myalgic encephalitis chronic fatigue syndrome. Although most of the patients that we um, usually, by the time that the MECFS patients um, contacted uh, uh, physicians and got care, got the right care, and got a diagnosis, it's many, many years out, like up to six to eight years out. 
Um, hmm. So we are seeing uh, early on and, um, you know, the trajectory may be quite different uh, for sort of long COVID compared to MECFS uh, patients. Okay. But we can certainly learn from that, uh, learn from sort of what works um, in some of these patients. For example, resting and pacing is important for these patients uh, to get better um, and not to overdo things um, so that they don't get relapses or what um, some people will call uh, post-exertional malaise, okay. um, PEM. So there are many things that we have learned uh, over the past two years, and certainly, um, you know, uh, we're continuing to learn as well. Um, any idea why it seems to affect some people and not others? And how many, you know, what is it, can we put a percentage to how many people may develop long COVID? Um, so that is a great question. Uh, we estimate that um, at least 10% um, of patients who have had COVID uh, can get long COVID. Um, so, you know, there are two, more than 2.5 million people in Canada infected with COVID. So I expect, you know, at least 250,000 people. Um, but the problem is, you know, um, not everyone got PCR tested. So that number may be a mm -hmm. low end of it. Um, and uh, there are people with COVID that, you know, was not tested and um, they weren't tested and then they, you know, have long-term symptoms. And so uh, it can be as high as, um, you know, 30-something percent. Um, so that's the current sort of uh, guess, um, guesstimate, okay. I would say. Um, what about uh, relationship to severity of illness? I know lots of people who had a cold, maybe lost their sense of taste or smell for a couple of days. Um, if you end up in hospital on a ventilator, are your chances of getting long COVID higher than someone who had a few rough days at home? Or do we know that yet? Um, so that's a great question. Um, so what happens is that uh, my colleague and co-lead, uh, Dr. Margaret Herridge, has been, um, you know, we have been working on uh, other sort of uh, bad lung condition called ARDS, Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. And it's um, the, the people who were in the ICU um, for COVID um, illness, they resemble the ARDS survivors. Um, and, um, you know, the problem is teasing out how much is quote-unquote long COVID and how much is post-ICU syndrome because mm -hmm. what happens is that we do things to patients to keep them alive that also can have adverse effects um, sure. longer term. So the fatigue and shortness of breath and other, you know, brain fog and other things are also seen in post-ICU syndromes. And so, you know, um, how to tease that out is uh, one of the problems. Um, what I can tell you is that um, the, one of the things that we have learned from CANCOV, um, the national study, is that not only are those who are hospitalized in the ICU or in acute care um, can get long COVID, but actually the ones who were not hospitalized. So even when we think of them as having mild or moderate disease, so not sick enough to get into a hospital, um, they can also have long COVID. And what we have learned is that the more symptoms that they have at the beginning, meaning like five or more symptoms, um, then their likelihood of getting long COVID is higher. Okay, uh, almost out of time, but I want to ask you before I let you go, um, what about 
comorbidity, the risk factors we're told about for COVID, and vaccination. Do you see any correlation between vaccinated getting less long COVID, people with the common comorbidities getting more uh, long COVID? Do they sort of parallel as they do with the initial infection? Uh, For sure, vaccination helps. So if you don't get COVID, you don't get long COVID. Um, It's that simple. Um, And if you were vaccinated, say triple vaccinated and get uh, COVID, your symptoms are milder. And so in that sense, the chance of getting long COVID is less. Um, And uh, there is a study that shows that it is about 50 to 80 percent less. Wow. Okay. So dramatic. Um, Doc, thank you. So vaccination works. Yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That is Dr. Angela Chung, who is a co-lead of CanCove. A couple of studies looking into what they're calling long COVID and whether or not it's something that's uh, completely extraordinary. A lot of people reporting it, though. We've talked so much about Omicron and, and the effect that it's going to have. And one of the big concerns, and we're seeing it, you know, you name the industry. We've talked to a number of people uh, on the air in the past uh, couple of weeks or whatever. Just so many people out sick and the impact that that has. Last week, we had a chat with Bob Lowe of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association and talking about, you know, the problems that they've faced. And he said one of the big ones they faced because of the pandemic was, if you remember when the packing p- plants closed down, because so many people were sick. And the crunch that that caused, well, guess what? That's happening again. There's another COVID-19 outbreak at the Cargill meat processing facility near High River. Uh, right now, it's about 40 or 50 confirmed cases. That's according to the union that represents workers there. Uh, in December, they voted 71% in support of a new contract, which uh, averted a strike, which would have been purely chaotic. Um, And health and safety issues were one of the big points in their discussion because, as we said, back in 2020, they were shut down for two weeks when hundreds of workers uh, tested positive for COVID. And uh, we were all hoping we'd avoid that situation, but it looks like we may be headed there again. Now, as a matter of fact, right across the board when it comes to food production in this country, this is a concern. And we're already seeing some of the implications of Omicron and staffing issues. So to get some insight onto what's going on, we're going to chat now with Mary Robinson, who's president of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture. Mary, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for the call, Shay. Happy to join you. So yeah, I mean, Cargill, I know that affects uh, beef producers in Alberta, and they'll be keeping a close eye on that, but it's so much farther widespread than that, right? I mean, some of the stories I've been reading, you talk about chicken producers, you talk about mushroom growers, doesn't matter, all aspects are being affected, right? Absolutely, and you know, even before COVID hit us, and, and now Omicron, uh, workforce needs were an issue in agriculture. We've seen chronic agricultural labor shortages from for a while now, and it's definitely been on our radar. So when we take a look at what's going on, and we'll get to those issues in just a moment, but first, the acute phase that we're in right now where we see Omicron and what it's doing. Um, are you hearing reports from around the country about this is what's happening in this sector or that sector? Yeah, we're definitely hearing uh, reports from different producers. And, and you know, the, the important thing about our food supply chain is it is a chain. And we saw that, you know, initially when COVID hit, the shortages that we experienced. And I know one thing that uh, beyond just the producer's side that's a big concern is this uh, trucker situation yeah. and that looming deadline of the 15th of January and what that's going to do. 
Yeah, uh, we're, we're actually working on getting a guest about that uh, this yeah. week. We were just talking about it. Yeah, um, if you haven't heard, all truckers planning to cross into Canada from across the United States border as of this Saturday will have to be vaccinated. And there's a lot of people very concerned that it's going to take the supply chain that's already stretched to the limit and stretch it even a little bit further. Um, and that's just the kind of, it seems like, like you said, we're, we're dealing with a really chronically tense situation or maxed out situation and we just keep adding additional stressors on top mary and at some point it just can't happen anymore right well yeah you'd wonder but i know uh i I can proudly say in agriculture when it seems like the impossible is in front of us we we do usually seem to get through it and i think uh, as far as the world goes canadians are pretty fortunate that i don't think canadians are going to go hungry anytime soon but I think it does create a lot of uncertainty uh, for consumers in regard to food prices. But yeah. uh, from from where I sit, the bigger concern is the uncertainty it creates for producers. I know here I'm in Prince Edward Island, and we're, we're facing obviously an issue with the the U.S. and trade of potatoes. And you know, come the middle of February, if we don't have resolution to that, it's going to be a huge impact potentially on the acres that get planted here, which in turn is going to have a, a devastating impact on our provincial economy. Um, when you talk about how it's exacerbating a, a chronic situation that's been bad for a long time, tell us about that. What's going on? Is it is it pandemic related, or does it go even before the pandemic, back more than two years? Oh yeah, definitely more than two years. Like a, the Canadian Ag HR Council, which I, I used to be part of, um, they have some uh, startling data. They've been collecting data for a while, and I think in uh, 2014. The number was that Canadian farmers, just farmers, not the value add and all the spin-offs that we see from Canadian agriculture, but farmers alone in 2014 lost $1.5 billion in sales because we couldn't find people to do the work. In 2020, we know COVID just made that worse. And uh, the chronic labor shortage resulted in $2.9 billion in lost revenue. And that's that's over just over 4% of our sector's total sales, which is, you know, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, absolutely it is. You know, when I was thinking about getting ready to do the interview, I was thinking, you know, in a lot of these instances, Mary, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, you know, we see industries like we see, um, you know, restaurants or stores, retail stores or whatever saying, you know what, we're just going to close one day a week or we're not going to open or we're going to close early or whatever the case may be because we don't have the staff. And, and I was thinking, well, if, if you're running um, an agricultural uh, operation, you don't have that option. I mean, the cows don't care how many staff are there. They're going to continue to need to be fed or, you know, same thing with chickens. I mean, life goes on, right? You can't just say, well, we'll just take a day off because we don't have the staff. Yeah, and, and if you think about some of the different commodities that we have in Canada, because it is a vast industry with a lot of regional nuances too, but you have a look, if you're if you're a, a grain farmer trying to get product to, to vessel in the West Coast while you're having some issues with, uh, you know, potentially shortages of trains maybe caused as a result of COVID. Uh, when you look at, uh, if you're a greenhouse grower, if you can't get your workers into Canada because of COVID regulations, and that means that you're maybe not going to be able to, you know, plant that crop that you're looking to plant next week. So it doesn't matter if you're livestock, crop, mm-hmm. um, all of these uh, people face different challenges. I mean, we all rely on people there helping us to do the work. So what the, what's the remedy here, Mary? Is there one? Is there a way to sort of make this better in the short term <laughs> and the long term? 
I remember one of the women from Cark saying, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and uh, last fall, we were pretty excited to be able to announce that we're part of a, a group that's uh, been tasked developing a national workforce strategy for agriculture and food and beverage manufacturing in Canada. And I know some people roll their eyes, oh, great, another strategy. But, you know, what else do we do? Bury our heads in the sand. So this, this strategy is going to go for a couple of years, this project. And uh, at the end of it, you know, the, the goal is to uh, build resilience in our food supply chain and to develop, you know, actionable items and tools that will help us address the chronic shortages. Because, uh, you know, if you look back at Barton and as well to Murad Al-Khatib's table, they identified agriculture as one of our country's biggest untapped opportunities. You know, we've got such amazing resources here. And if we could really grab that brass ring, it would mean a lot. We, we contributed $142 billion in GDP alone in, wow. in 2018. So this is a big industry. And if we could properly um, give our producers the confidence that they're going to have the workforce to make the investments and push forward, it's pretty exciting to think what we could do. Yeah, no kidding. And in the meantime, just uh, white knuckle it. And I guess the bottom line, Mary, is always be prepared to pay more. That's what it comes down to, right? Costs go up ultimately. Yeah, and uh, I think we also in agriculture have a lot of concerns about, you know, what's going to happen with uh, with carbon tax and how that's mm-hmm. going to be passed on to us. Because you know, Shay, uh, producers are, are price takers. We have very little opportunity to change the price we're paid. So if we get loaded a whole bunch of costs, then it's, it's well, and if you were to look at a pie chart of how much, uh, where the money goes for that uh, bag of potatoes or apples you bought at the grocery store, and you look at the percentage the producer gets, the shockingly small percentage. Uh, so when we talk about uh, increases in, in food costs, it's important to be mindful of the entire supply chain and to realize that farmers maybe aren't getting paid more, but certainly are seeing increased costs. Yep. And I encourage everybody to really take some time to think about that because it's the foundation of that food that we all rely on. Uh, great point. Hey, last one, a, a text from a listener saying, hey, where do you find a listing of farm jobs and what kind of living accommodations and wages can be expected? Good question. I was reading one story, like 40% of the jobs available in the, in the mushroom growing industry are open right now. Where would you find listings for jobs in, in agriculture? Well, I, depending on where you are, uh, if you're in downtown Calgary, it's probably a little bit more yeah, challenging yeah. than if you're in rural Alberta. <laughs> Um, and uh, I know the Canadian Ag Human Resource Council is a wonderful resource. If you have a look at it online, they've got some toolkits in there to help people connect with employers and employees. And always, you know, there's the job bank and there's just reaching out. I mean, if you if you know a farm in within your driving reach, reach out to them and yeah. say, hey, I'm looking for work. What do you have? Because I know on our farm, if we had more people showing up like that, it would be really encouraging. Excellent. Okay. Mary, thank you so much for your time today. Great information. Thanks, Shay. And just a weather report from Prince Edward Island. I yep. heard you looking for it yep. from Alberta. It's currently about minus 7. Blue sky, nice sunny day here. We just came through a nor'easter snowstorm. It's going to be minus 18 tonight, which is a different cold because it's a damper cold here oh, than what you folks have. You that damp cold. <laughs> hey, how bad was the snow? I know in Boston they were looking at a foot. You're not far from there. What did you guys get? Oh, we had about 40 centimeters, I think. Oh, in man. Yeah, and we had uh, winds over 100 clicks, so that snow found every little crack and crevice it could. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) Well, nicer day today. Mary, thank you again for your time. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Mary Robinson, who is with the Canadian Federation of Agriculture.
government of Canada announcing they had reached um, an agreement, well, two agreements, really, um, in terms of compensation and reform when it comes to First Nations in this country um, dealing with residential schools. And a lot of questions from listeners, as we talked about, in terms of how the money was, you know, arrived at and, and what it's for and, you know, why it had to happen this way and all these sorts of things. So we're going to chat now with actually one of the lawyers who was involved in some of the litigation. Anne Levesque is an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa, and she joins us now. Um, and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's just um, sort of define the, the terms. Of, you, were, you were a lawyer involved in the litigation here. It's been going on so long. How long were you involved, and which particular aspect did you argue? Yeah, so I was, um, the, the complaint was initially filed in 2007 at the Canadian Human Rights uh, Tribunal. I was barely a lawyer at the time, and I started working on the case in 2009, um, and the litigation has been going on uh, since that time. Yeah, it's been going on for a long time. So uh, we get the announcements, um, you know, a week or two ago that we've arrived at essentially two agreements. Let's break them down. Um, worth about $20 million each. Um, the first one is compensation. Do I have that right? Yeah, so the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal found in 2016 that Canada was and, and, and currently and is still discriminating against First Nations kids. This is in the child welfare system. It's, it has a system that it's underfunding the, the services to First Nations children. And um, the finding was also that not only is it underfunding, but the way that Canada funds these services is it actually encourages kids to be taken away from their families and their communities and their homes. So Canada knew that it was harming First Nations children and it continued to act in this harmful way, in a way that the tribunal uh, described as devoid of any moral caution. Um, so it was deliberately violating the law and it's uh, because of that that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ordered Canada to pay for the infringement of dignities that had occurred, but also for the willful and reckless discrimination that uh, it had engaged in and is still engaging Okay, so that's the compensation piece for $20 billion. And as you say, still engaging in, which speaks to the other $20 billion that was agreed upon, that's for reform, right? So that this doesn't continue to happen. That's right. Like, and you know, I'm a I'm a mother, and I'm a taxpayer, and you know, I I, I think it's deplorable that the government is you know harming kids. But uh, as a mom, but also as a taxpayer, we we don't want more victims. When there are more victims, uh, there's more payout. So, um, the our our primary objective in all of this litigation has always been to make the discrimination stop. Um, so that's the second part of the the agreement, or the the agreement to which the caring society is a part of is is to find ways to create a child welfare system that gives every child a chance, an equal chance to flourish and to grow up in their families and their cultures and, and learn their language. Um, and help me understand exactly what the violation of the human rights is. I know there's something called Jordan's Principle. I don't understand that. I'm going to be honest with you. What did the um, the courts say the, our country was doing in violation of human rights? What exactly was the case? 
Yeah, so this is the in in Canada in in all jurisdictions we have laws called you know human rights laws and human rights laws when we you know we think of you know the United Nations and all these things but in Canada when we talk about human rights laws we talk about laws that uh, prohibit discrimination and uh, what the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal found is yeah that Canada was underfunding uh, child welfare services for First Nations kids compared to services that were uh, provided to other um, children in fact. Families. And it, it and it found that it was the way it was funding uh, child welfare services was encouraging the removal of children, and it compared the harms suffered by children today to the harms caused uh, in Indian residential schools. And that's something that Marie Wilson, who was one of the commissioners in the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, testified to during uh, the litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan's principle is really a, a tragic story named after Jordan River Anderson, who's from Manitoba. And he was a little boy who was born um, uh, in Winnipeg due to uh, his mom's uh, complicated pregnancy. But he's initially from northern Manitoba. Um, he, at the age of two, he, you know, he was hospitalized for the two first years of his life. But at the age of two, he was um, his doctors told him he could go home, but um, because he was a First Nations child, the government of Manitoba and Canada couldn't agree on who should pay for the services um, that would be necessary to have him return home. And any other child, my girls, would have been allowed to go home. They would have gotten the support they need, but because he was a First Nations child, uh, neither government wanted to pay. And uh, Jordan stayed in the hospital for for three more years needlessly, and he died wow. in the hospital. Good yeah, heavens. because uh, yeah, and we have the notes of these bureaucrats, you know, going back and forth and talking about this three-year-old child like he's a a jurisdictional problem. Um, so Jordan's principle aims to just prevent First Nations children from being involved in these, you know, bureaucratic ping pong games, and that says that First Nations kids should get the services they need when they need them. Okay. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, and we're getting texts this morning, and I knew we would, and we did last week. Um, people asking, well, how was this dollar figure arrived at? How much does each person get? How many people are there? And why? Because we often hear, um, you haven't said it, but we've heard from other people, it's not about the money. We're not after money. We don't want the money. So what is the reasoning? Why was this award given of $20 billion? I'm, I'm talking specifically about the compensation. Um, I think I understand it, but help explain it to our audience in terms of why this decision was made and um, this $20 billion figure was arrived at. Yeah, so the well, what I can speak to specifically is the human rights case, um, because w- there's also been class actions, and, and so I'm not involved in the, the class actions. I'm involved, and I've, I've worked pro bono on this since 2009 on the, the human rights complaint. And under the Canadian Human Rights Act um, is when you um, discriminate, you, you have to pay for, you know, it's kind of like a, you have to pay a fine for discrimination. Yeah. And if you discriminate intentionally and knowing that you're violating the law, then you're it, it's something called, you know, uh, willful and reckless discrimination. It's, it's an increased fine. So that's what the government has been found to be engaging on. So um, we won a ruling in 2019 saying that, you know, the, 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 the tribunal described the discrimination of Canada um, against First Nations children as the worst case scenario of discrimination and you know i agree you know uh, it's the government that has the obligation to protect children was actually harming first nations kids so it described it uh, it so it awarded 
the maximum amount, which is $20,000 under the Act to every victim. And it also awarded the maximum amount for willful and reckless discrimination because Canada has known since the early 2000s that it was discriminating against First Nations kids. It knew that some of the kids were dying because of the discrimination and it continued to act. Um, so the, the tribunal said that, that that warrants the maximum amount, which is $40,000 for every child. And, um, you know, in the scheme of things, these are children who, you know, haven't been able to grow up with their families and their brothers and sisters and their communities. And um, it's, it's really not a lot if you think about, you know, what a childhood of equality is worth. Um, so where do we go from here, Anne? Uh, as, we, as we've described, this has been going on for years, this legal battle. Is it over now? What's next? Where are we at? So the agreement in principle, we're really optimistic about it, but it is non-binding. Um, okay. It's an agreement to talk and to uh, figure out, yeah, all the details about the compensation plan. And again, that, that's something that the that I'm not specifically involved with, but um, the Caring Society, my client, were involved in the long-term reform. It's to sit down and to talk to experts who will tell us what their recommendations are about how to fix this discrimination. They're going to be working closely with people who are on the ground providing the services and who are going to tell us what we need to do and work to take work together to uh, give these children an equal chance to grow up in their homes. So we're still in a wait and see that what has been talked about and promised will actually come to fruition. And forgive me if I'm a little skeptical based on what we've seen from this government over the years, Anne? Yeah, and well, what I would say is we, you know, litigation is one tool, but we would not have been successful without all the support of Canadians, and especially uh, this summer when, uh, you know, I think Canadians were just so alarmed to find the bodies of the, the children, and there was just a wave of support and solidarity of Canadians saying, this can't happen again, not on my watch. And uh, so we're really counting on the support throughout the year to make sure that uh, the negotiations happen in good faith and, and really with the best interest of children at heart. And thank you so much for your time and for the information this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for uh, paying attention to this situation. It's so important. It definitely is. Thank you again. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. That is Anne Levesque, an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. And as you heard, she worked pro bono for years on this case that has wound its way through the courts and ultimately uh, came to a resolution last month. Does that clear it up for you? It does for me. I think uh, a lot of the questions, because I had similar questions, you know, in terms of the compensation and, uh, you know, and, we, and a lot of you asked the question last week, okay, well, they keep saying it's not about the money, it's not about the money, it's not about the money. Well, then... Why is it about $20 billion? And, um, you know, as she pointed out, that's sort of, that's the way that the system works. The compensation has to be paid uh, in order to, you know, promote accountability and and to to show that what you did was wrong. It's like a fine, essentially. Uh, Some of you wondering about the time frame. This deals with basically um, from 1991 going forward, generally speaking, um, uh, some of the, you know, there's a number of different arguments, but it, this doesn't go back to what we were talking about with residential schools in the 50s and the 60s. This is different. Um, this is, you know, after the human rights legislation and all the rest. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.